This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, it's Shakespeare at his best. It's the best play Shakespeare ever wrote, Henry IV, Part 1. So shaken as we are, so wan with care, find we a time for frighted peace to pant. Marry then, sweet wag. When thou art king, let not us that are squires of the knight's body be called thieves of the day's beauty. But that I think his father loves him not, and will be glad he met with some mischance, I would have him poisoned with a pot of ale. Ah. But soft, I pray, did King Richard then proclaim my brother Edmund Mortimer heir to the crown? He did. Myself did hear it. Malaysia did deny no prisoners. <laughs> that villainous, abominable misleader of youth, Falstaff, that old white-bearded Satan. Alright, as always, we're going to start off with a short summary. How short? This is Henry IV, Part 1, in one minute. Alright, let's start the timer, and go. All is rotten in the state of England. Henry IV is on the throne, having usurped the crown from Richard II, and many think the king should actually be Edmund Mortimer, who Richard proclaimed his heir. The war hero, Harry Hotspur Percy, betrays the king and leads a rebellion against him, forcing Henry IV to form an army and reach out to his dissolute son, Prince Hal, for support. But Hal is off getting drunk in the taverns with a band of knaves, including Sir John Falstaff, a fallen knight who hopes that Hal will help turn the kingdom into a kleptocracy once he becomes king. Hal reunites with his father and agrees to go to war. Falstaff and the band of cutthroats who follows him also go off to war. All the characters meet on the field during the Battle of Shrewsbury, during which Hal confronts Hotspur and kills him. But hiding out during the war, Falstaff finds Hotspur's body and tells everyone it was he who killed Hotspur. Hal hears of this and realizes the truth about Falstaff's cowardice and begins to realize that he must cut ties with his old life, even as he and his father's army move on to put down the rest of the rebellion. That Henry IV Part One is a spectacular dramatic accomplishment cannot be denied. And yet other plays have become infinitely more popular. Hamlet, King Lear, Romeo and Juliet, they've all received their glory over the years. And yet Henry IV Part One is by far the superior play. Balancing comedy, action, politics, and family dynamics, the play has a magnificent ensemble and grand writing, some of the best in the Bard's career. From an artistic standpoint, it represents the pinnacle of everything Shakespeare had been working to achieve up until that point. In Henry IV Part I, we see elements of many of the plays that have come before it, and so it sits as a touchstone in Shakespeare's career, his first glorious success, and the means by which we can mark his development as a playwright. In short, it is with Henry IV Part I that Shakespeare, the artist, truly arrives. Surprisingly modern in its construction, the entire play builds towards a single climax, the Battle of Shrewsbury, which was originally fought on July 21st, 1403. In all the other histories, Shakespeare casts a wide net with his writing. Recall that Richard III compresses Richard's entire rise and downfall, while King John covers several years of history. Meanwhile, the Henry VI plays all chart the War of the Roses, whose repercussions lasted for decades. Shakespeare could have chosen to compress Henry IV's entire reign into a single evening of theatre. Instead, he concerned himself with a single battle and the rise of the two men who would lead each of the armies into war. In keeping his eye trained on this single event, Shakespeare kept the play from becoming too unwieldy. 
He also made it into a personal play that succeeds both on its own and as part of a larger historical narrative. It is the first history play that is as concerned with the relationships of its characters as it is with the history that surrounds them. Henry IV Part I is the first play to successfully juxtapose the politics of the royal court with its effect on the common herd. Now, Shakespeare had tried such things before, such as with the Jack Cade Rebellion and Henry VI Part II, but it is here that the juxtaposition becomes the beating heart of the play. Shakespeare's themes are sharp, his writing is exquisite, and even the smallest of characters make an impression. The hot-tempered Lady Percy, the superstitious Owen Glendower, Glendower's daughter who can only speak Welsh. These characters have brief but memorable appearances, both because of their characterization and because they are all important figures in the larger story. All these characters serve to illuminate something within the play's two central figures, Hal and Hotspur, and so all of them manage to be both entertaining and crucial to the plot. Of course, it is not the small characters who most Bardolators care about, for Henry IV Part I also introduced us to the enormous John Falstaff, who is one of Shakespeare's most titanic creations, both in physical stature and in terms of his literary worth. Oh, Hal! What time of day is it, lad? Thou art so fat-witted with drinking of old sack and unbuttoning thee after supper and sleeping upon benches after noon that thou hast forgotten to demand that truly which thou wouldst truly know. What a devil hast thou to do with the time of the day? Unless hours were cups of sack and minutes capons and clocks the tongues of boards and dials the signs of leaping houses and the blessed sun himself a fair hot wench in flame-coloured taffeta <laughs> i see no reason why thou shouldst be so superfluous to demand the time of the day indeed you come near me now how it's hardly surprising that falstaff who is a secondary figure nearly steals this play from everybody else this is entirely within character, given that he's a scoundrel who spends most of the play trying to become a legend in his own time. Prior to Henry IV Part I, Shakespeare's fools were an immemorable lot, with only the arrogant Bottom standing out among the pack. But Falstaff is smarter than Bottom, and more of a cynic too. Artistically, he has more in common with King John's Philip Falconbridge, for he too is the clever wit who both comments on the plot, even as he plays his part. Now, few characters in the canon can match Falstaff, but it remains a fact that this is not his play, any more than King John belongs to Falconbridge. In Henry IV Part II and The Merry Wives of Windsor, Shakespeare, driven by the popularity of Falstaff, will make the critical error of turning him into a main character. For now, though, Falstaff is in the passenger seat, which is exactly where he belongs. It is Hal who drives this play, and Falstaff, like all the other secondary characters, is only important because of what he can tell us about the play's hero. Hal is a character who does not get as much fame as he deserves among Bardolators. Hamlet may have better speeches, but Hal is by far the more dynamic person, and for actors, much more interesting to play. Like Hamlet, Hal has issues with his father and isn't all that anxious to go out and become king. Unlike Hamlet, Hal still has time to resolve his issues, and eventually comes to accept his responsibility and claim the crown. Now, Hal is not as philosophical as Hamlet, at least not in Henry IV Part I. The character will adopt a more Hamlet-esque tone later on in Henry V, but in Henry IV Part I, Hal is rarely given a moment to himself. Now, I don't think this was an accident on Shakespeare's part. Hamlet's problems stem from his isolation. If he had spent more time with Horatio and Ophelia, the Danish royal family might have had a very different fate. 
Hal's problem, by contrast, stems from the fact that nobody will leave him alone. If it isn't Falstaff, it's Ned Points. If it isn't them, it's his father. The world has turned its back on Hamlet, but everybody wants something from Hal. The prince remarks on this very fact during his only soliloquy, the one moment when he's alone in the entire play. I know you all, and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at, by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapours that did seem to strangle him. If all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work, but when they seldom come, they wished for come, and nothing pleaseth but rare accidents. So when this loose behaviour I throw off, and pay the debt I never promised, by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes, and like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation glittering o'er my fault, shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I've been referring to the character as Hal in order to delineate him from Henry V, which is his later incarnation. It is Henry who is the heroic king, while it is Hal who is the wasteful prince. Now it is his transformation from one to the other which is Shakespeare's focus for both the Henry IV plays. Part 1 is the start of this transformation, while Part 2 chronicles the conclusion. In this way, Shakespeare shifts the focus from the detailing of historical events to detailing how those historical events affect a single individual. We saw him do similar things with Richard III and Richard II, but he was limited in what he could do because of his desire to cover so much historical ground. Here, Shakespeare only wants to discuss one event, the Battle of Shrewsbury. Since that battle is directly connected to Hal's transformation, Shakespeare can take his time. At its heart, though, this is not a play about Shrewsbury, John Falstaff, or even how some prince hundreds of years ago realized how much better his life would be if he just became king. Stripped down to its heart, this remains a kitchen sink drama about a father and a son. That father, of course, is Henry IV, the man who usurped the throne and may have murdered Richard II. Hal, troubled by his father's legacy, seems to want nothing to do with it. Now when the play begins, Hal is a drunkard and a scoundrel, wasting away in the taverns, while Henry is busy putting down rebellions in Wales. This estranged relationship is juxtaposed by the play's primary antagonist, who, through a wonderful quirk of history, is another man named Henry. Henry Percy, also called Harry and referred to as Hotspur throughout the play, is presented as being everything that Hal is not. He is the grand hero, a Mars in swaddling clothing, as he is called, and he has the pride of everyone, including his father, the Earl of Northumberland. Indeed, he is so magnificent that even Henry IV wishes that Hotspur was his own. There thou makest me sad, and makes me sin in envy that my lord Northumberland should be the father to so blessed a son, a son who is the theme of honour's tongue, amongst a grove the very straightest plant, who is sweet fortune's minion and her pride, whilst I, by looking on the praise of him, see riot and dishonour stain the brow of my young Harry. 
Oh, that it could be proved that some night-tripping fairy had exchanged in cradle clothes our children where they lay and called mine Percy his Plantagenet. Hotspur is also full of passion and lust, as we see in his scenes with his wife, Lady Percy. Shakespeare chose to name her Kate, even though history tells us Percy married Elizabeth Mortimer. I'm almost certain the change was intentional, since those familiar with Hal's story will know that he too will someday marry a girl named Kate. Shakespeare purposely gave us two Henrys, and he went out of his way to make sure we knew how similar to each other they were. Yet, they still differed in several important ways. Hotspur is lusty, but Hal is completely asexual. Although he cavorts with prostitutes, the script never suggests he has any interest in them. He rarely talks to or about women throughout the play. Hotspur is also presented as having a violent temperament. Hal is usually irreverent and calm, while Hotspur is so wild that he can barely sit still while his uncle tries to plan for war. Good cousin, give me audience for a while. I cry your mercy. Those same noble Scots that are your prisoners. I'll keep them all, by God, he shall not have a Scot of them. No, if a Scot would save his soul, he shall not. I'll keep them by this hand. You start away and lend no ear unto my purposes. Those prisoners you shall keep. Nay, I will, that's flat. He said he would not ransom Mortimer, forbade my tongue to speak of Mortimer. But I will find him when he lies asleep, and in his ear I'll holler, Mortimer. Nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer and give it him to keep his anger still in motion. Here you cut on a word! In every way, Shakespeare sets up Hal and Hotspur as mortal foes who remain pricked by the other's existence. When Hotspur turns, so does Hal. One transformation begets the other. Hotspur mocks him as that madcap Prince of Wales, while Hal is continually provoked by the knowledge that he is living in Percy's shadow. Indeed, when Hal finally confronts his father in the middle of the play, it is the mention of Hotspur that drives Hal to make one of his most impassioned speeches. I will redeem all this on Percy's head, and in the closing of some glorious day, be bold to tell you that I am your son when I will wear a garment all of blood and stain my favours in a bloody mask which washed away shall scour my shame with it. And that shall be the day, whene'er it lights, that this same child of honour and renown, this gallant hotspur, this all-praised knight, and your unthought-of Harry chance to meet. For every honour sitting on his helm, would they were multitudes, and on my head my shames redoubled, for the time will come that I shall make this northern youth exchange his glorious deeds for my indignities. Percy is but my factor, good my lord, to engross up glorious deeds on my behalf, and I will call him to so strict account that he shall render every glory up, yea, even the slightest worship of his time, or I will tear the reckoning from his heart. It's worth noting that only some of this antipathy was Shakespeare's invention. The real Hotspur was 23 years older than Hal, and it's questionable whether he was actually killed by Hal at the Battle of Shrewsbury. Yet it's a fact that the real Hotspur was also an icon of the age who gained prestige alongside Richard II before changing sides to help Henry IV ascend the throne. Hotspur's later fall from grace doesn't get as much stage time as it may deserve, but then Shakespeare probably knew that his audience would already be familiar with the myth. 
Just as Hotspur is Hal's mirror image, so too is Henry IV giving his own parallel within the play. Here is where Falstaff proves his importance to the plot. He is the father figure who shows us that what Hal wants most is the approval of the king. Now, Falstaff doesn't walk around wishing some night-tripping fairy had switched the babies at birth, and if Hal puts up with Falstaff's chicaneries, it's because he believes that among Falstaff and all the rogues, he is truly loved. Hal pokes fun at Falstaff and revels in his knavery, but he also defends him when the sheriff comes looking for him and makes every effort to hide his skullduggery from becoming generally known. The complexities of this relationship become clear in the magnificent scene that ends Act 2 when Falstaff and Hal engaged in roleplay. First, Falstaff pretends to be the king, during which time he tries only to elevate himself in Hal's esteem. And yet, there is a virtuous man whom I've often noted in thy company, but I know not his name. What manner of man, and it like your majesty? A goodly, portly man, if <laughs> and a corpulent, of a cheerful look, a pleasing eye, and a most noble carriage. And as I think his age, some fifty... <laughs> or, by your lady, inclining to three score. <laughs> and now I remember me, his name is Falstaff. <laughs> if that man should be lewdly given, he deceives me. For Harry, I see virtue in his looks. <laughs> if then the tree may be known by the fruit as the fruit by the tree, then peremptorily I speak it. There is virtue in that Falstaff. <laughs> Him keep with. The rest banish. Not long after, Falstaff and Hal exchange their roles. Do that stand for me and I'll play my father. <laughs> Depose me. <laughs> if thou dost it half so gravely, so majestically, both in word and matter, hang me up by the heels for a rabbit sucker or a poulter's hair. Well, here I am set. And here I stand. Judge, my masters. Now, Harry, whence come you? My noble lord from East Cheek. <laughs> the complaints I hear of thee are grievous. Blood, my lord, they are false. <laughs> they are tickety for the young prince of faith. Swearest thou, ungracious boy? Henceforth ne'er look on me. Thou art violently carried away from grace. There is a devil haunts thee in the likeness of an old fat man. <laughs> a ton of man <laughs> is thy companion. Why dost thou converse with that trunk of humours, that bolting hutch of beastliness, that swollen parcel of dropsies, that huge bombard of sack, that stuffed cloak-bag of guts, that roasted manning tree ox with the pudding in his belly, that reverend vice, that grey iniquity, that father ruffian, that vanity in years. Wherein is he good but to taste sack and drink it? Oh. Wherein neat and cleanly but to carve a capon and eat it? Wherein cunning but in craft? Wherein crafty but in villainy? Wherein villainous but in all things? Notice how Falstaff goes a little too far. Depose me, he says, which is a direct reference to how Henry IV deposed the previous king, which is the whole reason the rebellion has occurred. This provokes Hal at once, and I'd suggest it's why, when they exchange roles, Hal becomes even crueler towards Falstaff and more insulting. Falstaff and Hal will have fewer scenes together after this. Their relationship has reached its climax because it is here that Hal comes to accept the reality they may someday have to turn his back 
on his old friend. That Hal truly loves Falstaff, despite his behavior, is clear when, during the Battle of Shrewsbury, he finds Falstaff's body and makes the mistake of thinking his old friend is dead. What? Old acquaintance? Could not all this flesh keep in a little life? Poor Jack. Farewell. I could have better spared a better man. Hotspur's rebellion, rather than just being some political act to drive the plot, actually serves to put Hal into an almost existential dilemma. Consider Hal as the prince who isn't certain of his own right to succeed a father who compassed the crown. Hotspur's rebellion would relieve him of that responsibility. Edmund Mortimer would claim the throne, and Hal could waste away in the taverns for the rest of his days. Yet Hal wants to be something more. Recall that singular soliloquy when he vowed that he would imitate the sun. Here is Hal's problem. If he helps his father put down the rebellion, he is inherently defending how his father won the crown. He is also rejecting his own path for the one his father has chosen for him. To do this, he will have to swallow his pride, return to the father who he is shamed and disappointed, and swear that he will finally make Henry IV proud. The political problems are forcing him to confront his personal wants. To Hotspur, this is all about a kingdom, but to Hal, this is about family too. I've said before that Shakespeare sometimes suffered from Act Fivitis, a disease characterized by an inflamed final act that has little to do with the four that came before it. Here, on the other hand, the fifth act gives us the play's crucial climax. Hotspur and Hal confront each other at last, and Hal, our hero, triumphs over the man who nearly usurped him, both in the kingdom and in his father's heart. The victory is a moral as well as a political one, and is Hal's greatest success to date. But it is almost taken from him by none other than Falstaff, who was playing possum and faking his own death. Having found Hotspur's slain body, he tries to take credit for the kill. When Hal corrects him, Falstaff has the gall to call the prince a liar. You. Why, Percy, I killed myself and saw thee dead. Didst thou? Lord, Lord, how this world is given to lying. I grant you I was down and out of breath, and so was he. But we rose both at an instant and fought a long hour by Shrewsbury clock. Hal, in a moment of magnanimity, keeps his moment of triumph to himself. He lets Falstaff take the glory but it is one of the last gifts he'll ever give the man who has robbed Hal of the joy of being able to show his father Harry Percy's body. Hal has finally seen that though Falstaff may care for him, he would never sacrifice himself for Hal. He is a man who is only out for himself, and it's here, as never before, that Hal truly understands the truth of the people he has been calling his friends. Now, it will take a whole other play for Hal to finally reject them, but here the moment has begun. Hal who craved a father figure, tried to find it in Falstaff. But the fat knight, despite wanting Hal for himself, succeeds only in driving Hal back to his father, and as it turns out, towards his destiny as a king. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. Although it remains less popular than Hamlet and King Lear, I have a sense that the Henry IV plays are starting to attract a following, mostly because more than a few adaptations and productions have started to surface in the last several years. Now, most of these are filmed versions of productions, although I have to do make a mention to Gus Van Sant's 1991 film, My Own Private Idaho, which was a very loose adaptation of the play that featured Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix. 
I say loose because it's the best way to describe the adaptation. Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix both play street hustlers, one of whom will someday inherit a fortune, which is the modern American equivalent of being a king. The movie has its moments, but aside from borrowing some of Henry IV's key elements, it's only an adaptation in the same sense that any story that features star-crossed lovers would be an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. A far more authentic adaptation is Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight, which repositions the entire story of the Henriad from Falstaff's point of view. It's a grand film, but as it borrows heavily from both The Merry Wives of Windsor and Henry IV Part II, I'm going to leave my discussion of Chimes at Midnight until later. Now, there's also a televised version that came out during the 1960s called The Age of Kings, which I've discussed before on this podcast and which I continue to recommend. An Age of Kings is worth watching, if only to see a very young, pre-James Bond Sean Connery give a great performance as Hotspur. There are also plenty of film theatrical productions, including the one from Shakespeare's Globe and another from the Royal Shakespeare Company. My personal favorite, though, is the English Shakespeare Company's production, which was directed by Michael Bogdaninov and starring uh, Michael Pennington, which came out in the 1980s, and it set the entire Henriad in a World War II-era England. These are bold and fun productions, and the one from Henry IV Part I uses the era swapping in really clever ways. However, for modern audiences who are more interested in film versions than rather than just film versions of plays, the best version to watch is the BBC's The Hollow Crown. Now here you have an episode devoted entirely to Henry IV, part one and two, and we have Tom Hiddleston playing Hal and Joe Armstrong as Hotspur, with Jeremy Irons and Simon Russell Beale rounding up the cast as Henry and Falstaff. Although it does cut down the text somewhat, the production is well done, expertly acted, and does a really great job of showcasing the very complex dynamics between Hal, Hotspur, Falstaff, and Henry IV. There's a lot of subtle things that go on in this play, and I think film is a really great medium for helping to capture these subtleties and helping audiences really understand what's happening between the lines. Hiddleston is especially adept at portraying the various changes that Hal undergoes and showing the mind that is at work beneath the cavalier attitude which Hal is projecting to the world. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. That's it for Henry IV Part 1. Next up, the story continues as Falstaff takes center stage for good and for bad in Henry IV Part 2. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. For more information, please visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare Unbarred. And hey, while you're there, why not check out the other things I do with my time? You can get information on how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants, published by St. Martin's Press. It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women who spend a great deal of time trying to survive in a world too small to contain them. That's it for Shakespeare Unbarred. 15 plays down, 23 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play. Let's go and cough through it.